Hey, everybody. This is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the mailbag episode of the No Film School podcast. As, so I'm Charles Hayne. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins. Hello. And Jason Hellerman. Good morning. And you guys all know what this is. You've all experienced a podcast doing a mailbag. It is a thing. We try and answer things as they come, but we had two good ones that seemed like they would fill up an episode today. So we're just doing two questions this week. Do each of you want to take a turn sort of summarizing a question? Gigi, you want to do the actor's question first? Yes. So we got an email from Nihar Tibbs, who is an actor based in India. And he really enjoyed listening to our episode with Robert Yauman, who is the DP of Wes Anderson. We've had him on the podcast twice. He is a gem of knowledge. Definitely recommend listening to that episode. And Nihar asked, how significant is it for an actor to understand cinematography and lighting? And more importantly, how can it enhance an actor's performance in a scene? And I thought this was a great question because I do so much like focusing on what the performance is and then also where the camera is going to be thinking from a director's perspective. But rarely am I... Actually, I've never really thought of it as being an actor outside of... I remember a teacher on Zoom in a Leslie Kahn class using the camera to sort of explain the difference between comedy and drama. And he moved very close to the camera and was very like small and grounded for drama. And then he moved back and he was big and animated for comedy. But outside of that, really haven't thought about it. There's a ton to unpack here. So there's the technical and the technical is going to change over time. You know, there was a there's a period where there was no playback, right? And then, you know, if you've forgotten who invented playback, it's a good time to remember that playback was invented by Jerry Lewis because yeah, Jerry Lewis Jerry. wanted to be able to watch playback on his takes. Now, playback existed in TV before that, but playback only started to exist in TV when we had videotape. Without videotape, you can't have playback. And so when videotape came in, playback came to TV, and then people who had used it in TV as a tool to evaluate their performance it came to motion pictures because Jerry Lewis wanted to be able to see his own performances. And so it was director, it was actor director driven to be able to see that playback. And now we, you know, it's impossible to imagine video without making motion pictures without playback, but it wasn't a thing for the longest time. So the first thing to think about is to what extent do every actor should understand at least a little bit about the basics of filmmaking so they can understand the rhythm of a shoot and coverage. Meaning, you know, famously, I always like to talk about this with when I'm teaching beginning classes, there are warm-up actors and burnout actors. There are actors who, like, give their best thing, take one, and then the rest of their takes, they're just trying to get back to that. And then there's warm-up actors who take the 10 takes to figure out what the scene is, and they don't know, and they're exploring, and then they find it. You want to get to know yourself well enough to know what you are, because it's very rare you're both. There's very rare actors who are like, every take is gold, right? You're either a figure-it-out actor, or you're a... I do it and then it's gone. And you should know that because it's a question that comes up. And I, I tell you what, if no one's asked you that as an actor, we're aware of it. Like every movie I've ever worked on by the end of day three, we're like, we're thinking about an actor's momentum and an mm -hmm. actor's, what's another good word for that? Momentum. Let's say momentum. We're thinking about that when we play in coverage. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've stood there with a the first AD and been like, okay, well, like, it, go, it becomes unsaid at a certain point where you're like, oh, well, of course we need Gigi's coverage first because Gigi's going to burn out. And Jason, Jason takes 20 takes to figure it out anyway. <laughs> so 
we can wait for Jason's coverage till later because he's going to be reading Gigi and delivering lines and then he'll explore it. And it becomes sort of like an unspoken thing. So you should get to know that about yourself. And you should get to know that not based on what you think you want to be, but by practicing a lot with people Mm -hmm. and seeing what works. The other thing, there's a famous story, I think it's on the Limey, where Peter Fonda walked over and asked what the aperture was on a shot because Peter Fonda had become sort of a cinematography nerd and sort of wanted a sense of how much room he had to move around. And, you know, the deeper apertures give you room to move around. And there's other actors who become cinematography nerds. Giovanni Ribisi, who isn't directing much that I know of. I'm sure he's directing a couple episodes of TV shows. But, like, he's become such a red camera nerd. There is a setting in the red camera menus. There's a false color named after him that he developed. Wow. Because he is such a cinematography nerd that he was like... So I think that there's an argument to be made that, like, understanding the parameters of how much room you have to work are a useful thing for an actor who is comfortable with it to develop. Meaning, if it's going to throw you off and distract you from the scene to understand those things, then 99% of the actors I've ever worked with don't know what an aperture is and don't know what a depth of field is. And it has not stopped their careers. They have nice big careers and they've gone through a variety of things. And it's totally okay to not understand that. However, some actors, I think you might be one of them because you thought to write this question, do learn about depth of field and lighting so that they know, oh, how important in this take is it that I hit this mark? Because some takes it matters and some takes it doesn't, right? If I'm at an F5.6 and I'm on a 28 mil, you got room. If you're a couple inches off, it's fine. But if I'm on an 85 at a 1.4, you don't have room. I really need you to hit your mark, please. So it, it's something that's sort of beyond the basics. It's something you decide as an actor how far you want to go in understanding it. But I wouldn't go so far it distracts you from doing the job of your performance. Yeah, I I always think about time on set and actors who get restless, maybe just because I've done movies with kids who are like, when are we doing this? And we're like, we need a grip to move seven lights before we can yell action. (laughs) Go back to your school, you know, in quotation marks. But Or, you know, like that very famous Christian Bale, like, you're moving the lights while I'm running through my running through my take. I don't know if you've seen that clip. He like freaks out on, I think it's like Terminator or something like that. They're lighting a scene and he's, you know, practicing and whatever. But I, I think just in general, you know, it's nice to know on like on set what's happening if you're not shooting, you know, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? I also think I'll come at this from a different perspective, which is maybe let's say you're an actor and you're meeting with a director and you're deciding whether or not you want to star or be in a project. And you'll have a lot of questions to ask, right? Not just what do you want me to do, but what's your vision for this project? What's it going to look like? How are you going to shoot it? And I think if you come across a director who's unprepared, maybe that's a sign for, you know, who who to work with or who not to work with. If they're not 100% sure or they're going to do it in real time, maybe that does not help your acting sense. You know, I, I think just to sort of add a tributary onto that thing Charles just said, it's if you are an actor who knows like, oh, you know what? I need strict supervision. I need to be told what to do. I don't like to improv. You know, I, I like to hit marks and do that. And you have someone who's like, we're going to figure it out in real time. It'll be handheld. I'll be moving around the whole time. That might not be part of your performance or it might not be something that you know. I don't know. So good to know up front. Also good to try things you've never gotten to try before. You know, work with those different people and, and make decisions. So I'm always happy when someone on the set takes an interest into why we're doing something a certain way. Because I do think it builds that nice familial quality that we're all in it together. I I think that there's also something to be said about how knowing this or at least having a little bit of information can empower you as an actor. I always feel like it's such 
a vulnerable position to be in in so many ways. You don't have that much control outside of what you're doing in that moment as the camera's pointed at you. Like you don't have control over the edit. You don't have control over how you're being lit necessarily. But working with actors who are able to understand what they need makes me feel like as a director, I can meet them where they're at. I remember, and Charles, you hit the nail on the head of, you know, by day three, you understand the flow of the different actors and how you work together as a team. On day one of shooting an island, uh, we were shooting scenes from this montage, this sort of couple working it out montage. And I had just sort of assumed because I think that the montage itself will play comedically because it's like you take snippets from the longest conversation with your husband and you get these little inserts of like how the range of where those long, hard, difficult conversations go. And so I had just this sort of like little snippets of these scenes where they're crying and then they're laughing and then they're telling a story from their childhood and then they're confused and all around the house and popping into these different moments. And I was just like, this is going to be easy day one, like such low hanging fruit. What I didn't realize is that actually these were actors who, one I had worked with extensively, one who I had just cast two weeks before, like they had started rehearsing and memorizing their lines and they went into their room to prepare for the scene and they came out and they were loaded. They were ready to go. And then we had to move the light. And then we lost that momentum. And then we had to stop for 45 minutes and kind of reset and like, really let the performances get there again. And we realized that as a unit, we work really well recording or or filming and shooting and adjusting. And that was like such a valuable lesson because we then were able to capture the spontaneity within the performances. And I also want to call out our third lead, Arta Gee, who is less experienced acting, but is a high fashion model, somebody who really understood their angles and somebody who was able to stand in front of the camera and look awesome no matter what they were doing. And and that was something that was also very powerful and, and important for the character to be able to have that command for the camera. So I think that there's truly power. And if ever you're in a position uh, where you're in front of the camera, and I, I actually highly encourage actor or I highly encourage directors to take acting classes for so many reasons, but also so you understand what it's like to have that eyeball camera lens looking at you. There's so much, there are ways that you can reclaim power if in those situations by asking these types of questions and and gaining this information. So I'll just riff on that. Two things that I thought were really interesting about all that. The one thing, the first thing I want to say is if you are interested, it is a lifelong process learning about our art. And so, like, you should just keep learning. And it's exciting that you want to learn about cinematography. The other thing I think I wish more actors had a better handle on was editing. And it is mm-hmm. something that, like, either getting your hands on the footage from one of your own projects and trying to edit it, or if that's too distracting, which I think could be if you're in it, like, getting the dailies to another film, getting the dailies to something like Edit Share and a few other, like, stock footage things have full sets of dailies available for learning. Really trying to edit together a performance. And getting a sense of what does it take to make this work in an edit and what doesn't. Because one thing I've definitely, you know, it's always a, I, I, I like it when an actor trusts me when I say, I don't need another take. I'm ready to move on. Every once in a while, you will have actors that are like, oh, I actually feel like I need one more. And it's always a debate because it's every film set day is so full of so many things. 
and you're trying to get as many things as possible done. And if I did one or two extra takes of every single shot, then that's three shots I'm not getting at the end of my day. So I simultaneously want my actors to know I trust them. And so if they're going to ask for another take, I'm going to give them one. And every once in a while, you get something great out of that additional take. But often you don't get something dramatically different. It's just about like not, you know, like one thing that I've noticed with less experienced actors is that they tend to be really focused on. I want a complete take where everything works. But I'll tell you what, while I'm watching footage, I'm mentally ticking off like, oh, this moment's not working and this moment's not working. I need to go polish this moment. And when I'm like, oh, I'm ready to move on, I'm confident I have all of the pieces I need to cut the scene. Do I have one take of a close-up where I can play the whole thing in that one take? Usually not. But how many times in a movie do you play the entire scene in one close-up? You're cutting to the reverses, you're cutting the wide, you're cutting the inserts. There's all of these things going on. And you know, I think actors that understand that better, more yeah, tend to be more experienced actors. You're actors who've done something and then they watch the final result and they see how it's been cut. Tend to give a little bit more variety in each take because they they know that there's room in the edit to sort of go back and take that one quieter moment from the last take and mm-hmm. put it in this one and massage things. And I think that they also tend to have a little more confidence or trust in the director when they're like, oh, I feel like I have what I need at this point. Yeah, that's something you build by working together and hopefully... that, you know, you don't need to trust every director. And if you, in your gut, know you have a better take in you, it's okay to ask for that for sure. But you want to be judicious in asking for that because you are asking for more time, which is very expensive on a film set. And so you want to be conscious that you're like, oh yeah, I actually, there is more I can give on this, I promise. And I think that learning about editing and in addition to learning about cinematography is a really valuable skill for anybody going through the process of learning to be an actor. I also think anybody who's trying to act should absolutely try and direct a short film and and recognize how truly hard it is to tell a story with pictures. Um, Jason? Yeah, it's funny that you said that. I When I moved out to LA, I was an assistant, heard a lot of people pitching, and you know sometimes actors, when they would pitch, I, I would always, it almost seems wrong because like, they're usually embodied, but like when they would pitch in a room, I was always maybe more into it because they're actors, right? And like they could bring these emotions in that I honestly never thought about before. You know, when they're pitching their projects, I was always like, wow, like these aren't writers and maybe they're not hitting the beats I thought they would hit, but I am so emotionally invested almost all the time when an actor is coming in to pitch something because of how good, or at least a good actor, right? How good they were at getting me where they knew they needed my emotional range to be. And when I started writing, my pitching were was very like structural, right? This is what happens in act one. And then we move this way. And I think I wound up having to take a couple of improv classes in LA. And that totally opened up because it's not only are you getting it, but you're learning how to tap into how to make an audience feel something. I think even the reverse, if you're a director who doesn't understand actors or wants to understand more, take those classes. Honestly, you will be absolutely better in the room on a pitch. You'll learn to yes and with the producers, you know, oh yeah, what a great note. And what if we did it this way? But also think like getting a deeper appreciation for how hard it is to take someone uh, who is just sitting there and then move them into an emotional state, which it's not, you know, obviously in film and TV, you're doing it in tandem with the writing and the directing and the music helps so much. You know, if you've ever seen any of those scenes where they clip music out, you're like, oh, I feel so different. But it is such a fascinating, I think, part of what the craft is and learning about what each other does. Not necessarily, you know, you don't have to become Marlon Brando to... To, to direct Marlon Brando, right? But just understanding and appreciating the art of what people are doing will get you so much further when you have to sit down and explain with them what you need on both sides of the coin, right? Whether you're acting, telling the director what you need, or you know, you're know, you a director trying to figure out how do I communicate to these actors? Or 
someone pitching? How do I communicate to these execs who very famously need a lot of help moving in an emotional way? All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our next project. Sort of a, a good pit. And next question, Jason, do you want to sort of give us a good summary of our next question? Sure. This one also came into the Ask No Film School hotline. Are we saying names? You know, should we? I said names. Okay, we got to give yes. shout outs to the people who are part of our community. <laughs> Absolutely. So this one comes from Freddie Graves, who uh, was introduced to the podcast, you know, as many are just kind of listening uh, with their uh, partner, uh, Simone Davis. And uh, they were listening to an episode Gigi did with Bryce Norbitz. And Gigi, could you what's give them a quick summary on Bryce? Yeah, Bryce is the head of Tribeca Development Labs and Programming. So she took us through, you know, how to be applying to labs and development programs and kind of like where they fit within the ecosystem. It's a great tactical, inner tactical career conversation. Yeah, so this question basically is they're making this what sounds like an awesome TV documentary, you know, three season, 30 episode tale about tra- a showgirl community, which I found to be fascinating. And, you know, maybe we could slip a link in our thing. They sent us a link to their website and we'll put it in the article. I went through everything. I thought it was very cool. But basically, the idea is as they enter post-production and are only in need of funding, they have to build out their post-production team. So it's how do you build out a post-production team when you are hiring people? You know, uh, you know, is there a way to get editors or how do you find, I guess, other post, post-production positions um, when you don't have experience actually going out and hiring people? So many thoughts. So the first thing I'm going to say is this. Hiring people for production is 50 to 1,000 times easier than hiring people for post. And the reason why is production, even at its hardest, is an adventure, right? It is summer camp. There will be pizza. You'll meet new people. You'll go new places. You will, you know, your subject is one that people are probably very interested in. But whatever it is you are working on, production, you can always find people for production. There are so many people who are trying to become cinematographers, so many people trying to work through art department. You know, you might end up paying sounds, but like little indie productions, you are always able to put a flag in the ground and say, we're shooting this and Goethe's angels come to your aid. Come, Goethe's angels come to your aid. Post is different. Post is the same room sitting at a computer, which is not that different from every other job we do. It's not that different from the jobs where people get paid money. It's a lot of very hard work sorting footage out, especially working on documentary style projects, multi-camera shooting, where you're building a story. It is a lot of effort. And it is hard sometimes to evaluate the true skill of the person who did it if you don't have the full dailies. So for instance, with the cinematographer's reel, I can watch some projects they shot. I I don't sizzle reels like a little, like I will watch a two minute sizzle reel of the coolest shots they ever shot. But if I'm going to hire someone, I need to watch like an actual 20 minute chunk of a movie to see does the coverage work. I would love to watch a whole movie if I can, so I can see, can they plan out a visual design plan that starts in one place and ends in another? But separate from all that, I can watch a a 90 minute documentary episode and still know very little about the editing Because like maybe they just lucked into the world's best documentary footage and it had a story and it lent itself to a story and they threw it together. And, you know, so watch more work than you think you need to watch from someone. If you're interviewing people and they've cut a dozen docs, ask to see their three or four favorite and watch their three or four favorite. Check references. That's something I didn't do in the first couple of years of my career. I'd get these resumes from people and it would list contacts and I didn't think to check them. But follow up. Hey, what was it like to work with this person? Did you enjoy it? Was it good? Did they follow through? Was it? The thing, I want to encourage you to get a post producer or a post supervisor, 
But the reality is on an independent level, on small projects, it's the director who supervises post or the project doesn't get finished. A post producer or a post supervisor is like the producer for the project, but in post. It's a highly skilled job. I know very happy people who are very successful at it. But outside of a, if you are not well budgeted, you don't tend to have it. It becomes the director's responsibility to be the post supervisor through post who's coordinating. When are we watching this cut? When is this edit due? How is the footage getting to sound in order for them to do a sound design? So the biggest thing I would look for is I would talk through your word of mouth network because 90% of hiring is word of mouth people. I would check references. I would put an ad on Mandy.com. I've hired great people off Mandy.com for 20 years now. And the nice thing about post is that, you know, post is the thing that went the most remote and there are a variety of tools that make it doable. And then the biggest thing I would lay out at the beginning of your post hiring process is what are our schedule expectations? When do we expect to be watching what? Because one thing that is much different with production and post is production. There's a shoot day. We're all arriving. If someone's an hour late, they're, they're, they're usually not showing up. People don't show up to shoots an hour late unless <laughs> catastrophe happens. The post is different. And you, someone has to usually work a little harder to keep those things on schedule. And some editors keep themselves on schedule. Most do not because the things that make you a great editor are usually not the same things that make you keep to deadlines. Mm. Um, so usually you need an outside force to bring that in the same way that I know amazing cinematographers that would never finish a shoot day without a first AD, you know, it's different skills. I know amazing editors who would never finish a cut without a post supervisor, which means on this project, it'll be you and you should be having conversations about timing. When can we expect to see this cut? When do we want to see this cut? How much time do you want to spend with me in the room? If we're in the same city early on in the process. And you also learn a lot about the person and their collaboration style by evaluating them in this way when you're interviewing them. Those are my things. I'm in the process of building out the post-production team right now for my movie. And I very early on attached an editor, Christina O'Sullivan, who I worked with on the short Yes Daddy, which has the same lead and was written by Madison Lanesey as well who plays the lead in my movie and the lead in Yes, Daddy. And we have worked together on two shorts. But the thing, two things that stand out to me about, you know, getting that hands-on experience. I think it's very important to work with people on lower stakes things before you bring them on for your baby. And and so this was one of those situations where we had a five-minute short and a lot of that work was me and Christina or me, Christina and Madison sitting together, eating dinner together and then working till midnight on a Friday night. And the fact that like we all chose to be there and we're enjoying ourselves and cracking moments within the story, that that was like a, a big culture fit that was really important to me. And now Christina and I are about to go into working in the edit for the next till February 3rd. And right now it's November 27th. I've already received the editor's cut. I, I've already... I'm so relieved, you guys. I, I was expecting to have to dig myself out of a hole because of other experiences. But I'm like, no, we have a foundation. We have a movie foundation. And now Ooh. it's about finessing. And I think that is because of something else that I know about working with Christina. I remember we did backyard screening at this LA shorts thing called Show and Tell that's put on by a 
comedian named Seth Word. And once a month, he gets people together. And it's all about bringing people who are creating things together and screening their work, everything under five minutes. And Christina and myself and Ryan Thomas, our DP, went to this backyard screening and screened an earlier cut of Yes, Daddy. And we watched it. And Ryan was like, the color, the LUT, it's not working. And then Christina and I were both like, the air, the air, we hear the air, we feel the air, it needs to be tighter. And we talked about it briefly afterwards. And then the next morning or the next day, Christina delivered a new cut that had sucked out all the air. And it was like, she was able to see something and then address it on her own. She's like, I think I have a fix and then present it to me. And that's where I thought it was such a, example of somebody who is closing the gap versus like I I found sometimes it's like you're you have to be there holding hands with an editor because maybe they haven't been empowered by a director who's no like I need your support in closing this gap. I'm also in the process of hiring folks everything from a composer to a post sound mixer to a colorist and it's a bit of a it's scary to hire somebody that you haven't worked with before. So I am relying a lot on referrals. I'm asking for to specifically talk to people who have similar projects. So we're working with a guy named Casey who has a small indie production house, post house called C4 Studios. And what I liked about him, and I talked to a bunch of different people that he worked with, but what I liked is that he worked on a movie that was shot in the Yucatan with lots of loud insect noises. And I'm like, well, our movie shot in Bocas del Toro, Panama, lots of loud insect noises. And the insects at 2 p.m. are different from the insects at 3 p.m. So I knew that he would understand the sounds of the tropics and how to make that cohesive because in theory, the 2 p.m. shot and the 3 p.m. shot are happening simultaneously in the timeline of the movie. So I was like, this is a tactical thing that you can bring to the table that specifically complements our project. And so looking for those things was really important for me. A lot of it's chemistry, you know, sit down, have a coffee with the person, talk about not just your movie, but your life. How did they come up in this business? You know, do you have a similar background? Do you think you could get along with them? I also think it's okay to bring a problem to the table right away. Like Gigi said, hey, we have this insect thing. What do you think about that? Right. Just like a general thing. You don't have to show up with the scene you want them to edit or whatever. But I know I worked on this commercial and we had an issue with similarly like fitting in fitting for time, right? How do we get this into 90 seconds when we have three minutes and 30 seconds of footage and, you know, it's hard for us all to see it a certain way. And I just remember the best editor, the people that we wound up loving working with came in very calm. And they were like, well, it's because you're trying to edit from the end and what you should be doing is cut from the beginning. And I was like, oh, that is so smart. You know what I mean? Like we were out here trimming off the last 30 seconds over and over again, being like, it doesn't make sense. And they were like, well, you should be trimming off the first minute. That's the way to do it. And I, I think it's like just talking to people will unlock those answers, right? Especially if you talk generally. I mean, commercial, very different, right? But the similar theory, right? Someone who comes in calm, someone who knows what they're doing and comes with references. I don't think they need to be like exactly like you. But if you have a conversation with them, I do think there's like a little bit of just chemistry there. You know, how do they talk to you? Are they going to respect your opinion? Because at the end of the day, if you are in charge of post, you are in charge of post. And, you know, you're going to be setting deadlines and doing whatever. So finding people you can work with. And also, I think if you're self-funding this and you've self-funded things in the past, budget is something you should think of as well. Get that budget conversation out of the way in that initial meeting, right? Because if you just have a limited amount of money or a certain amount of time you have to do things in, make sure you're hiring someone who fits into that slot 
I think that's really important. But word of mouth, really, we've all said it, but it's legitimately, I don't know if I've ever worked with anybody that nobody's vouched for, you know, (laughs) where you really roll the dice, maybe on one or two things that are smaller. But I love hearing that someone I know, even someone I know that knows someone that knows them, right? Like wherever that degree is, hey, this person's sane. This person's not going to freak out in the edit if you're like, hey, can we actually go back to this other take? Because I think it works better in my, you know, it, it truly maybe is the most important part. It's just has someone work with this person and how easy are they to work with and how enthusiastic are they to work with on this project? Yeah, I mean, two things that sort of have come up is one is your recommendation is your reputation in this industry. Yep. You will, you know, if you're a freelance colorist, let's say, you are, let, uh, let's say, you're, let's put it differently, you're a freelance producer. You are going to end up recommending more people than you are ever going to work with. You might give recommendations to 100 different people and only have 10 clients. So your reputation will be based on who you recommend. So don't recommend bad people. I actually had to have coffee once with a producer friend of mine because he recommended someone bad enough that I was like, look, we have to have a conversation about this. I like you. I think you are better than this. You should not recommend people like this to other people Mm. because it hurts your reputation. I am now, I've never hired him since, but I can't trust your recommendation, which makes me doubt that you're actually very good at this job if these are the people you're recommending. It was a nice conversation. He's still working 10 years later, but that was actually like, not a lot of people are going to be generous enough to take that time for you. So A, be careful in who you recommend, but B, like recommendation is the engine of this industry. The other thing Jason brought up is budget. So there's an instinct many people have to try and do flats. And the stereotype about flat budgets, like I'm going to pay $5,000 for editing, is that you know, the general advice is that the, the vendor, the editor, doesn't want to do that. They want to do hourly. And the producer always wants to do flats. However, more experienced producers, in this case, you know, you directed this project, but you're also producing it. You're the client, in a way. More experienced producers don't want to do flats either. And the reason why is flats don't leave you any leverage. Flats mm. don't leave you, I've agreed to $5,000. Now I have to work out all of these little sub benchmarks for what that $5,000 means. $1,000 after edit or whatever. Like, a flat is doable for a pre-existing relationship. If you work with someone all the time, you could ask them as a favor, hey, as a favor, can you do this one as a flat for me? But you need to know that you're going to get less out of a flat than you are out of hourly because an hourly is built for professional work where there's more rounds of revision as Gigi was talking about with the previous question, iteration. Like most of creativity is iteration. Most of creativity is not, I'm going to give you $5,000, you're going to give me an edit, we're going to be done. It's the weeks of back and forth talking about, can we take it this way? What if we opened on this scene? Mm -hmm. Uh, As uh, I quote too often, Ralph Rosenblum, who cut a lot of great movies in the 70s, um, like to say all good editing happens at lunch. And the argument he was making is that he would spend all morning looking at footage and doing stuff. And then you'd go to lunch and you'd be talking and you'd be like, oh, fuck, you know what we need to do? We need to do is. And then you go back the afternoon and you do the stuff you thought of at lunch. But like the actual editing was over pizza. Like that was the actual work of the edit was the decisions you made. And that kind of stuff is really hard to do on a flat sort of, you know, incentivizes people to work the bare minimum they possibly can, unless you have a pre-existing relationship, right? Unless this is someone you've known for years and you've worked together on a bunch of stuff. And then you can be like, oh, hey, can you do me this favor on a flat? you will be fine. But aside from that, I think you're better off both as a vendor and as a client working out some sort of hourly arrangements that acknowledges that some of that hourly time is going to be sitting around eating takeout, talking. And that's still part of the work. I had a client once, this was, God, 15 years ago. But as a colorist, my deal memo includes five minutes of break every hour to walk outside and reset my eyes. And that was always in my deal memo. I was always strict about it, but I wanted that in my deal memo so I could. 
Mm-hmm. And motherfucker, shot back. All right, well, I would like to pay you for 55 out of every hour if you're going to be outside <laughs> for an hour. And I was like, yeah, no. He still hired me, but we had a big like back and forth about that in the hiring process. I'm, I'm living right now, even if it was 15 Yikes. years ago. I'm, I'm so mad. <laughs> yeah. On the flip side, that dude was generally pretty good about honoring overtime client in other ways. But that one, I was like, really? You're going to try and, and, you know, I would only go outside every two, two and a half hours to reset my eyes, but I still would go outside because it is part of the job. Yes. Like I can't stare at a screen for three, like after three hours staring at a screen nonstop, I will not be doing as accurate work. Like you cannot trust me at that point. You want this as well. I have a question about the hourly rate. So say you are an indie film asking for a friend, you know, no, I'm asking for my movie. Do you put like a cap on it? Say we can pay you hourly up to this amount or because my fear and I think the fear around hourly is like it'll just bloat and become this thing that we don't have budgeted. So what I always do with hourlies is I always lay out what my expectations are for where we are. I always say, you know, here's what the hourly rate is. Here's what I am budgeted to do. Here are the benchmarks where I would like you to flag me if you don't think we're going to fit within that amount of time. Yeah. And then, so I, you know, I've been on both sides of this negotiation and as both the vendor and the client, I feel like it's the vendor's obligation to keep the client appraised of where you are. So let's say you're like, okay, I have 10,000 budgeted for editing. I've agreed with my editor 50 an hour. So that's uh, 200 hours of editing. Once my editor is about 100 hours in, they should be keeping me appraised. Yeah, I feel like we're going to hit our budget or I feel like we are not moving as quickly as we expected to. And, you know, it's not an uncommon thing to talk about strategies, to talk about, you know, I've had more than one conversation where I'm like, look, if we are going to hit our goal here, we need to start moving from these bigger macro conversations Mm -hmm. to more fine polish or whatever. So you work out a strategy together to still hit the budget or for the client to decide, no, I like the pace where we're moving and I need to figure out a way to make that more time. Yeah. So it, the reason I like our, I like anything that forces active conversation. The reason why I think everybody, everybody needs to do a deal memo, a deal memo, you know, I've given this speech too many times, but a deal I memo is like a contract. Speech. A deal memo is a contract written in language you can read. It came about because Elliot Silverstein and directors in the sixties wouldn't get contracts out of the studio because studio legal was too slow. So they said, look, producers, you take notes on the phone calls. Can we get a copy of those notes and sign them? And we'll call that a deal memo so we can at least start work without waiting on lawyers. So that's a deal memo. Written in plain English, it's the notes you would make on a phone call. I'm hiring Gigi to cut this thing. It's $10,000, $50 an hour. I'm expecting roughly 200 hours. We're going to talk again at 100 hours, check in where we are. That's a deal memo. Write that down. Both you sign it or just email it to each other. And that's a deal memo. You should do deal memos on every project you do for everything you do because it forces people to lay out expectations. If your expectation is, I'm going to be seeing a cut in a week, but the editor doesn't know that, well, that's both people's problem. You'll be unhappy in a week and the editor will be unhappy in a week. And so if you lay out a deal memo of, we're going to look at these cuts on these days and we're going to check in about things on this way, you're way better off. So deal memo is the biggest thing. I can't believe I forgot to say that earlier. I hope you're still listening, question asker. Do a deal memo (laughs) with every person you work with in post. Deal memos lay out expectations. And the more expectations you get out, the happier the collaboration is. Absolutely. I will say, just to back up here, <laughs> flat fee-wise, my best uh, writing assignment ever was flat fee. Work with a friend. It was amazing. The absolute worst one, which I did earlier this year, 
was a flat fee and it was one of the most awful experiences of my life just because the expectation, the goal line kept moving. They still owe me at least $5,000, maybe more. Uh, I'll never be able to get it, mostly because I didn't do the deal memo thing Charles just said, so definitely do it. We have a contract, but you know, by the time you get lawyers, it's uh, pretty awful, but it is... Do we like, name and shame? Do yeah, we name and shame? I, I probably... I've named and shamed before and gotten uh, sued, so probably not, but I'll, I'll name them offline. I will uh, for sure... T- I'll tell you, but it word is... Word of mouth. Word of word, mouth. Well, I was going to say, I, we can reasonably assume you've told all of your friends, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, I had a client once yeah. who stiffed me and I just emailed... And at that time, LA was small. LA was small enough, I emailed every colorist in LA. Good, yeah. I, I mean, I knew 80% of the colorists in LA. Yeah. And I just told them all. I was like, fuck these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I do think hourly and expectations, you know, just to echo what you said, way better. Because I think if I had known what these expectations would have been with this one company and people, I would have not taken that job. You know, so it is it's important because you want to work with people that want to be there. And also if the goalposts change you and they want more money, you should you you would you should understand why. Right. If you're moving and doing different things. So I do think that winds up being important. The biggest problem with flat fee is the goalpost constantly moving. I've Mm -hmm. worked on flat fee projects where it's, no, we are delivered. We are done. And they're like, no, but we still need X and Y and Z and whatever. And I had one job where I just returned the fee and the hard drive. I was like, out, done. Like, like I, you, your expectation is impossible to meet. Yeah. I should have been billing you hourly. I am not doing this anymore. Yeah, that's good. I have a question that's sort of a going back to the recommendation question. If somebody approaches you and asks about somebody you cannot recommend, who you do not recommend, two questions, I guess. One is if somebody's like, oh, you worked with so and so on this, like, amazing. Do you proactively offer up? I actually don't recommend working with them. Or do you only, and then follow up question is when somebody reaches out and they're like, how was your experience working with so and so? and you can't recommend it, like what's the most, the best way to say, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend working with this person. I think the caveat probably is if someone reaches out who I'm already friends with and asks me about working with someone, then I'll just be brutally honest with them because our friendship isn't based on this company. I had someone reach out, I guess last year, who I didn't know, right? Who was like, hey, I saw that you work with so-and-so on this. What was your experience like? Then I think it's, I always try to say, let's get on the phone and talk about it. Because I, A, I don't want to put something in writing that could be forwarded yeah. or whatever. And that's just like a general distrust of someone I don't know, which I actually think is pretty smart. But then when I get on the phone, I say, look, this is my experience. I give them kind of the blow by blow. You know, this is how it started. This is what my, you know, if I'm open to it, what my fee was, this is how it went. And then I'll just kind of launch into the issues I had. Here's some of the issues I encountered, blah, blah, blah. So I'll try to keep it more political. There's always a nice way to put it. But I also think, you should just be honest because at the end of the day, you don't want to. I have a story that's way too long for this, but I had a guy who wanted to hire me to work for a influencer celebrity type. I'll be vague because I also signed an NDA, although I'm definitely going to tell people about this another time. Anyway, <laughs> I showed up and the experience was so awful that I convinced everyone else to quit that was there. I was like, just so you know, this is, you guys shouldn't be treated this way. You should all leave when I leave. But, and some of them did, but it does. It is important, I think, to like to be as honest as possible, but also recognize not everyone's experience is going to be the same. There's plenty of directors that I wouldn't work with again that I don't think are like, I just think are bad for me, but not bad directors. You know, like our collaborative style didn't necessarily mesh, but I don't think it's, you know, because of the way I was treated. And that's why I try to put everything on front street and just say, this is the way it was. This is how it went. And this is kind of sum it up. But if it's truly awful, 
I think the best way is just to go in is I hated it. Here's why I hated it. You may have a different ex- like experience, but these people are cheap. They want extra work. They're going to call you around the clock, blah, 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 like that sort of stuff. I, I think it's important for people to hear and know. I'm just honest. Like I do the same thing Jason does. I, I'm not going to write anything down because life's too short. And you know, you never know when something's screenshotted or even whatever. Get on a phone and I will just be like really honest. I really do believe your rep- recommendation is your reputation. Yeah. And I would never want to recommend somebody can do something they can't do. And I'm also honest in the, the mid. If someone's just mid, I will just be like, look, I think that they provide phenomenal value at a mid-budget, but I wouldn't bring them on to a network job or something. Yeah. Like I would just straight up say what I think because I think it's the most important thing. You know, the hope is is that we're all learning and growing, right? So the hope is like someone that you might not bring on a big job, you might bring on a little job. It's very rare I'll be like, oh, I would never hire that person under any circumstances, although I will say that, and I have absolutely said that. I've been like, no, you should not hire that person. I don't think that they are capable of collaborating professionally. I've worked with people recently that if anybody asked me for a recommendation, I would be like, no, don't hire them. And I, but you know, I giving an honest assessment of where someone is and what they can deliver, I think is professional courtesy. I think it helps that there's not a lot of overlap anymore in my social circles and my collaborative circles. So it's, it's very rare. Anybody is asking me about a friend. It's, you know, I have working with your brother, Charles, your (laughs) blood brother. (laughs) Well, you know, if there's one thing I know, it's that my daughter is the best at everything Mm. and you all should hire my daughter. She's hired. It's tricky. You know, it's tricky, but I think it's just better to just be like, you know, you can be honest without being brutally honest and you can just give an assessment of where you think someone is capable of delivering. That's really what it is. The question is always what can they, can they deliver what they need? Or if it's about a client, are they a human being or are they a monster? And I haven't had a monster client in a long time. It's been a while. Pretty much every, pretty much everybody I've worked with in the last eight years, I would say you should totally work for them. They're all great. So that's great. I've been very lucky lately. Now I feel like I've jinxed myself and I'll probably have a shit. Maybe luck to translate to Freddie, our question asker. You know, that's yeah. 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 No, good luck. I mean, good luck, post, Freddie. I, as much as I started this by saying post is not as fun as set, post. And be way more fun than set because you can give birth to your project again in a new way. And, you know, every phase of film has its own problems and rewards. In the same way that production has the like, oh my God, it's 34 degrees and I'm in shorts because it's LA and I forgot it got cold at night in the mountains and I'm snowing and I'm miserable and I just want to be back in my bed, as well as all the, the fun summer camp stuff. The post can have some of these magic moments where you yeah. realize a new thing about your project. And you're like, holy shit. It's like post in some ways in resembles writing in like the thrill of finding a solution can be so satisfying that you want to jump up in the air. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wish you a great project. I hope that you have a phenomenal experience taking everything you've been shooting for years and years and years and finding it. I also want to commend you for fucking finishing your doc project. The number Word. of people I know Congrats. with eight or nine year doc projects on their hard drives that are still on their hard drives is tremendous. So the fact that you're like, no, fuck it, we're finishing this, we have shot it, and we will finish it, is a victory for art. Go art. Go art. Go arts. All right, everybody, where are we on the internet? I'm not on Blue Sky yet, but I will be. I'm, I've quit the Twitter, and uh, I do YouTube stuff occasionally. I'm Charles Hain. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm at Lost in Graceland. I am also on a website called ggihawkins.com, and I just released my short Yes Daddy on Shortverse, 
which is a great little platform. It's about a year in and I'm enjoying my experience on that platform. It's also on Vimeo if you want to see what we talked about today. I'm at Jason Halloran on Twitter, on Instagram, Jason at nofilmschool.com. Send, keep sending your Ask No Film School questions. These are like kind of my favorite episodes because A, I get to learn a bunch and B, it's amazing. And to the person who sent me the email uh, telling me how they would have rewritten the last act of my other spec, yeah, I think you're wrong, but I love getting, I, getting emails is my favorite thing. It's like getting regular mail. So keep sending them. The twist doesn't work, but I, I applaud you for trying. Yeah. <laughs> 